At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Boodoo and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world, from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode features Peter Shalek, a chief product officer currently at Stellar Health and formerly at Ableto, and Rena Ponde, currently a strategic advisor and formerly the chief medical officer of Ableto. Joining from A16Z are Julie Yu and Justin Larkin. As Julie mentions at the start of the episode, there's international relations and then there's CMO-CPO relations. And there was the time I think I picked up the phone and probably yelled like loudly, madly, worst state of, you know, I've ever been in at you. And then Pete, Pete does this thing where he, he looks off on the screen. We were, we were, <laughs> I, I know I'm actually Pete's- sitting here. It's- there are trees out the window here that I look at when I need to lower my blood pressure. <laughs> so I, I know when I'm in trouble because Pete doesn't look at the screen anymore. And I was like, oh crap, like, this is not okay. We need to we need to come back together and figure this out. Peter and Rita talked about working together to improve their relationship and the outcomes of their teams, and they get granular about what worked and what didn't. And Rita and I were talking about this yesterday. I think after that first, I don't know, six or nine months of churn, when we were trying to figure out how to work together, one of the things I think worked incredibly well is that Rena and I were always on the same page to our teams. Mm-hmm. And so actually we couldn't come up with a single example in, in the last two years where the two of us needed to escalate something to our CEO yeah. because we, so like our teams disagreed all the time, but one, they mostly figured out how to work together on their own. And when they escalated things to us, the two of us were able to almost always figure it out, agree where we were going and show to the teams like, this is what good partnership looks like and kind of model that. Today's podcast is for healthcare builders who are struggling with balancing clinical and product. The guests talk through real examples and tactical advice. You're listening to BioEats World from A16Z. When we talk to digital health founders and we ask them, what are some of the hard things about the hard things with respect to company building in healthcare? One of the most common topics that comes up is, we really need to figure out how to make our product teams work better with our clinical teams. And we hear it all the time in our portfolio companies. Justin and I both experienced this in our own startups. And we're very lucky to have Pete Shalik and Dr. Rena Pandey here, who played the roles of chief product officer and chief medical officer, respectively, at Able2, uh, which is a well-known startup that eventually became part of the Optum Behavioral Health Group. And so really excited to dive into a conversation about how do we solve this? You know, 
we like to say there's international relations, there's government relations, and then there's CMO-CPO relations. And it's <laughs> almost at that level of dramaticism that, you know, we oftentimes hear these conversations. So uh, thank you, Pina Rina, for being here. Uh, let's kick it off by just having you guys tell us about your time at Ableto and, and how you guys ended up working together. Thank you for having us. It was a little bit of an unusual way that we came together. So I had founded a business called Joyable back in 2013 and able to acquire us uh, in early 2019. And so Rena had been, Rena and I, by the end, were like the two most tenured people at Joyable and able to, but I was pretending to take credit for the able to part of it through Joyable and she had been there the whole time. So uh, when we came in to able to really the whole product org was a clinical org and product was run by clinical. And then through the acquisition of Joyable, we went from being a single product company to a two product company with aspirations to grow significantly beyond that. Over three years, we became a six product company and all of those products were deeply clinical. And so Rena and I, through fits and starts, figured out how do we get to this place where we had this really high quality clinical product together where we needed both the discipline of product management and the discipline of what we began to eventually call clinical program development, which is the clinical arm of our product org. I joined Able2 back in 2013. Pre-Able2 was not an entrepreneur at all. I was an academic cardiologist. Um, I'm Boston-based at all my training at, at Brigham and Women's Hospital, my, my clinical home, and then jumped from academia to entrepreneurship back in 2013 when Able2 was just uh, in infancy. Not, I'm not a founder, but I was there in early, in early, early days. And um, Pete and I came together just as he described when able to acquired Joyable. Um, I, I've been the chief medical officer since the beginning, but I didn't lead product or anything product-y back then. And um, in the transition and bringing on Pete, it's exactly as he described. We were just clinicians and engineers. And we we had a few quote product folks. So I, I will I will give a hat tip to, to some of our um, product experts, but we didn't really have a formal product organization. And so there was some learning <laughs> to be done when we brought the group together and Pete shifted from CEO Joyable to Chief Product Officer at Ableto. And there was some learning on all sides that we had to, to work through. I love it. Maybe to kick off with a provocative question here, I know that at you know tech-enabled services companies and even much more so at two companies that have you know recently combined, the lines between care model and the lines between product can often be blurry. We're so curious how you define product at your company, Justin. It's a it's such a great question, and that you know, product can be defined in so many ways. At able to the product, quote unquote, was really a clinical intervention. It was we were care delivery at our core. We had technology to enable that care delivery for both the patient and the provider and for our internal operational purposes and, and they, you know, to have an electronic medical record to keep track of all of our patients, obviously. But really, we were providers delivering clinical care. And so the product was heavily clinical. Over time, we had more and more products that were less primarily clinical in their goal. But yes, like this was part of the challenge. I think Pete and I had to had to tease out, right? Like what's the technology and what's the clinical intervention and you know how do we actually define product? And maybe we define that word slightly differently for the different elements of the work we're doing. And that that helps us kind of lean more clinical, more product in how we come our, bring our teams together. One thing that I found really helpful, we thought of the product as what we were delivering to our patients and what we were delivering in value to our payers. I see a lot of orgs where product really means software. And so you have kind of PMs who are responsible for the software, and that's pretty separate from the clinical delivery side. We did a nice job, I think, on both sides, although we had to figure out how to make it work. 
with the base understanding that our product was helping people improve their mental health and delivering value to our payer customers. So that, that I think set us up both to have friction, but then to figure it out in a way that really worked on both sides. How would you describe what your mandate was as the chief product officer of this very clinically oriented organization? And how did that impact your job description maybe differently than when you were in just a pure technology environment? Probably 70% of our product surface area was product for providers delivering care to patients. But when I, it's an, it was an interesting evolution over the time when I was able to, because when we joined, if you just looked at the market, everybody was demand constrained. And so it was really about how do we get payers to want to do this? By the time I left, all the demand had poured into behavioral health. And so it became much more provider constrained. It became about how do we improve provider experience? How, what's the value prop to providers? And so I probably started that way because I think to start with, we were thinking much more about patient and then payer. But over time, provider became actually really at the epicenter of almost everything we did. Yeah, although all throughout, I would agree with your point, Pete, uh, throughout a lot of the product was provider facing to be delivered to a patient. So we we probably, to be honest, didn't spend as much time on the provider experience early days. We really did think, Pete, I agree, about the outcomes for the patients and the value that we were, as a result, delivering to our payer partners. But we had to be smarter about the provider experience as the, the space developed and as the market for hiring and retaining providers shifted. We, we really had to be thoughtful because really our pro- product faces a provider, or well, many of our products faced providers, not all, in service of delivering great care and consistent high quality evidence-based care to patients. This is amazing. Like you guys had your shit together. You worked really closely together. You had this very clear definition of your swing lanes and you know what you were in service of. But tell us like, how did you guys get there? There must've been challenges along the way. Tell us some more stories about what was hard and what was, you know, what were some of the biggest challenges to getting this right? And we have our rose-colored glasses on today, don't we, Pete? Um, <laughs> we weren't always well, we wearing them. We ended up in a good place, totally. Yes, well, did. there was the time when our, our CEO sat me down to one-on-one and was like, Pete, you're fucking it up with Rena. <laughs> that one. And there was the time I think I picked up the phone and probably yelled like loudly, madly, worst state of, you know, I've ever been in at you. And then Pete, Pete does this thing where he, he looks off on the screen. We were, we were... <laughs> I, I know I'm actually sitting here. It's, there are trees out the window here that I look at when I need to lower my blood pressure. <laughs> so I, I know when I'm in trouble because Pete doesn't look at the screen anymore. And I was like, oh, crap. Like, this is not okay. We need to we need to come back together and figure this out. What were some of the specific triggers that set each of you off? You know, like we were saying, when we came together, Able2 didn't really know product as a discipline. I mean, like I said, we had we had some folks who had had product management expertise, but we didn't have a large product org. We had a handful of people. Um, and and Pete, to his credit, kind of brought that discipline to able to. We we had a chief product officer by, by, by title for the first time. We had pods. We had an agile process, right? Like, but we shifted from like clinician plus engineer to product with clinicians and designers and engineers. And so I, the way I saw it is sort of the needle went 180, the other, 180 degrees the other direction from clinicians sort of saying, we want X and engineers building it to product thinking about designing, building almost, but pre-build kind of tossing it over the fence and saying like, what do you think about this? And we clinicians kept being like, 
yeah, no, that's not gonna work out. And no, nope, that's not how clinical care works. And nope, you can't do that. And um, yeah, you have to ask for the medications because that's kind of important. And we just, I just kept feeling like I was saying no. And I, and it just kept pissing me off. <laughs> I'm honest. I'm like, can you guys stop building stuff and just like tossing it over the fence and expecting us to like say yes to everything and then being mad that we're like these curmudgeonly appearing old fuddy-duddy clinical people? Like we're not. Like we're here to be innovative. Like really, truly. Like so stop, you know, like stop doing this. Let's actually ideate together, you know, roadmap together, build together, deploy together. Like wouldn't that be fun? You know, like so if I'm honest, I just kept being like, just stop building stuff and hoping and praying that we're going to agree. Let's think together. And then we're all going to be happy all along the way because we've done it from the beginning together. And so, yeah, I picked up the phone and yelled at Pete a couple times <laughs> along the way <laughs> in my frustration, I'm sure. Totally. It was so. <laughs> yes, I, she did, is what he's saying. <laughs> oh, she did. But we always, I feel like we always got along personally, which was helpful. Yes. And Arena and I had a tradition that we would get a whiskey before board dinners. <laughs> we, you know, it was a really tricky thing where we had been, both companies had been, I think, centered around evidence-based care it was one of the reasons we put the companies together, but we were so much stronger on the product and design side, and they were so much stronger on the clinical orientation. And so figuring out how to do that, especially in a world in which the vision that we were all bought into, like, of doing the acquisition was that we were going to go from a couple of clinical interventions to many clinical interventions and a triage product. There was just a ton of stuff to build. And so I think when we started, it started with maybe more natural, like push pull relationship where I'd be like, this is what we want to do from product. And here's the data and here's the user experience and the business case. And clinical would be like, wait, wait a second. We're like, we've been so rigorous. And now you're asking us to dial down the rigor for some abstract notion of more patients or more whatever it is, like, how do we think about that? And so I think Rena articulated well where we were in a, I wouldn't have called it adversarial. I think it was more like we were both in our lanes, but they were separate lanes and we were trying to communicate across the lanes. And the fundamental change that took place after Rena felt remorse for yelling at me and my CEO told me I was screwing it up is we, no, it's great. Uh, The passion was good. It's what got us to a better place is we realized like, hey, what we need to do is find a way to integrate clinical into our normal processes in the same way that we integrate engineering in the same way that we integrate design. And so that was the like flip was this, you know, hey, instead of being a counterpoint, you're actually part of the clinical, you know, you're part of the product team, broadly speaking, because we had such a clinical product, you're a early important ongoing partner to us throughout. So that was the, that was the change. We used to like, think of it as like the fourth leg of the stool, right? Like if you think of product technology design as this like three-legged stool, well, if you're building clinical solutions, if your products are literally clinical interventions that you're putting in front of providers and patients, you actually need a fourth leg of the stool. And that fourth leg has to be clinical. And, and we got there eventually, but it was, I think there was a period, right, Pete, where it was like there was a three-legged stool who sort of was doing and then would come over. Yeah, and then and we then had a separate sort of over here. We had to put all the pieces together, really, from step one. Maybe to yeah, double click and get tactical on that point just mm-hmm. for a minute. We've seen a lot of companies struggle with this idea of product building, you know, throwing it over the fence to clinical teams to get feedback. At a tactical level, how did you integrate clinical into product or product into clinical, whether that's at an org level, whether that's in decision-making processes? Like, what did that ultimately look like once you kind of redesigned the way those teams functioned? Our teams were organized in normal pods, squads, cross-functional teams. So that would be, before the org, it was 
PM design, tech lead, and then some number of engineers. And we had a separate clinical org that was a partner to us. What we ended up doing was allocating dedicated clinical program development. That was what we called CPD is what we called our clinical team on that into the teams. And they were in the same way that product is responsible ultimately for the business and technology for how we do it and design for the user experience. CPD was responsible for the clinical rigor of what we did. And so we brought them in early. We literally, when we were setting roadmap, especially with new products, they almost, they looked probably most like the design function in the sense that they were furthest ahead. So, Hey, we're going to build a new product. Let's go do some research. They would do research on clinical intervention where they felt strongly, where we felt we had flexibility and oftentimes partnered with design who was thinking about what's the experience we can create off of that early on. And then like everything else, they had a, you know, a, a thread through where they did most of their work up front. But then as we went through and to build and made those sort of small tactical decisions, they were involved in those and then, you know, QAing on the other side. And then of course, looking at the data that we generated on whether our clinical intervention was helpful. Maybe that, that last piece was important. We, whenever we built new products, we did have a pretty rigorous way. And Rena actually not only had the CPD team, but had a bunch of other teams that helped us with the analytics of, is this driving the clinical results that we expect? And we had more than a dozen peer-reviewed publications. So we were a very clinically spirited org in that way that, that I think brought clinical throughout from beginning to end of the whole process. Did you have, you know, clinical folks embedded in all of your commercial teams? I know, Rena, you spent a lot of time in front of customers. And, you know, what were some of the other teams that you also had to get right to make your relationship as product and clinical leaders work? Both of us interface with our external partners. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the market, just at the very beginning of relationships, sort of building, building those relationships with our payer partners, and then a lot of time continuing and maintaining those relationships. And that was, you know, with my, my broader CMO cap on. And then throughout, I guess, the entirety of our tenure, you know, we were getting feedback and commentary from our payer partners that we had to then think about how to incorporate into our products or whether to incorporate into our products. You know, sometimes you get advice from non-clinicians who think they know what they're talking about and you have to sort of gently remind them that that's not clinically sound or appropriate. And, you know, we I think we had a really strong Pete and I and our team's North Star about clinical quality, evidence-based care and delivering um, good clinical outcomes for our patients. There was a deep, deep, deep well of strength around and conviction around that North Star. And so that, I think, positioned us really well to be a good, strong partner to one another and to our client partners. You know, we, we had to listen, but we also had to kind of push. Like, there were, we got a lot of requests for broadening the scope of the clinical services that we, we built and de de delivered. Um, some of which we said no to. I mean, we were kind of a plusy in our goals, right? We wanted to do things right. And so there were times we were asked to do things that we didn't have the resources or the expertise to do. And, you know, some might think you can just cookie cutter a, a mental health intervention from one population to another, you know, but there's a lot of nuance, right? As, you know, Justin, you know, like, and everybody knows, like, healthcare is not just clean and black and white. There's a trillion little nuanced details that you have to um, think about for specific patient populations and different interventions. Mental health is an incredibly heterogeneous bucket of conditions, right? Um, not just one thing. Uh, so yeah, that was a team, the, the, the sales team, obviously, we spent a lot of time with. And then um, I'll just mention one more, uh, which is the clinical care delivery organization. 
So we haven't mentioned that yet. Like these clinicians that Pete and I have been talking about were not, they're clinicians by training, social workers, psychologists, um, many of whom were PhDs. They had in their past lives delivered care, but they were a really special group of people that had developed product knowledge, some of which we trained them on. Um, they were not our clinical delivery org. So that was the other one we obviously had to be very closely allied to was the clinical operations team. Um, who that, those, were our, those were our network of clinicians and the supervisors and the team of folks who ensured we were, we were delivering clinical care appropriately. You mentioned, you know, things that you were asked to do that you didn't. And maybe to answer that question, Pete, you mentioned that you went from a one product company to then two and then six. Can you just describe what those products were just to give people a sense of sort of the framework of how you guys decided what to productize versus what not to productize? For sure. And then I, I'm happy to touch on the sorts of things that we got asked for a lot that we, we you know, and where there was tension on that. So Generally speaking, able to, when they bought Joyable, incredibly high quality evidence-based care delivered for, uh, think of them as the most complex, non-serious mental illness patients. So people with comorbid depression and diabetes or anxiety and cancer and treating those people and demonstrating both that we improved their mental health. And then we had a bunch of data actually under Rena's team that showed that that lowered the total cost of care and we would make real guarantees around that. But that was only applicable to, depending on the population, let's call it roughly 5% of the population. And so a lot of our payer customers were saying, we love what you're doing, but we want you to do it not for 5%, but for almost 100% of our population. And so what we ended up building was a suite of products. Joyable was one of them, which we rebranded and integrated, but then other products that were tailored clinically to different mental health needs and different levels of acuity. And you can imagine as you come down that acuity curve, one, you need less intense interventions, and two, you justify less prices. So to make the unit economics work, technology plays a bigger role than the people do. And so we were building out uh, that suite of interventions down the spectrum. And then on top of that, we had to build the sixth product was a effectively a triage product that we called Able to Connect, which helped get people into the right level of care. And that actually plugged into our payers so that we could get referrals from different places. There are some call centers, care managers, other places where they send us patients, then we want to make sure we're getting them to the right level of care. That had a lot of just great work between clinical and product to be done. Sometimes the things that we got asked for were things that would have been big built for us. Hey, can you do what you do, but for kids? You know, that that was a common payer ask. That was a big thing. And to Rita's point, sometimes we just got small ones where we just disagreed. Like, hey, on your clinical triage, you're ruling out these patients and you're sending, you're trying to escalate them to higher levels of care. We don't like that. If we send them to you, we just want them in your programs. And we would say, well, we don't think they're clinically appropriate for our programs for whatever percentage of this. And so we'd have to work with the with the payer to work through those specific questions, you know, holding, as Rena said, a really strong North Star to the people we brought into our programs, we wanted to be able to help. But that took a combination of clinical product and obviously all of our go-to-market teams to be able to to do that in a way that, you know, worked with large organizations and complex situations. Especially in the context of just this product complexity just outlined, we're really curious, you know, we talked about how clinicals embedded within the product org, how ClinOps touches those different orgs as well, but maybe at the leadership level, you two are obviously, you know, C-level execs, chief product officer, chief medical officer, presumably both reporting to the CEO. Curious how that structure helped you guys in kind of your daily mandate, how that potentially caused friction. And ultimately, the you know advice and recommendations you give to companies thinking about leadership structures for those respective teams. I think it was superb that we were set up as peers. I think we both were able to then independently represent 
our teams and the voice of the product and the voice of the clinician. And I think our teams appreciated that we both had sort of equal voices at the table. It worked great. I can't imagine Pete reporting to me or me reporting to Pete. I, I just think the there was, would have been a little bit of a perversity of sort of the incentives and the goals. And this way we could kind of come together um, and collaborate and sort of equally represent two parts of the product that needed, you know, equal representation. I think you'd agree with that, Pete. Oh, 100%. And Rita and I were talking about this yesterday. I think after that first, I don't know, six or nine months of churn, when we were trying to figure out how to work together, one of the things I think worked incredibly well is that Rena and I were always on the same page to our mm -hmm. teams. Mm -hmm. And so actually we couldn't come up with a single example in, in the last two years where the two of us needed to escalate something to our CEO yeah. because we, so like our teams disagreed all the time, but one, they mostly figured out how to work together on their own. And when they escalated things to us, the two of us were able to almost always figure it out, agree where we were going and show to the teams, like, this is what good partnership looks like and kind of model that. I think that would have been way harder if, yeah, if I had been under Rena or Rena had been under me, it would have been a much different dynamic to kind of have that equal footing of the two functions. Yeah. I think it also set us up to get ourselves into a better relationship because, you know, this before we were collaborative, which we were eventually, we weren't. <laughs> and, and, you know, and that push pull, I think that we were peers allowed us to sort of sit alongside each other and sort it. You know, there was no power dynamic involved. We both clearly had the, the same good intentions. Pete, you said this earlier, like we're both good people. We both had like mutual respect for one another. We just had to figure out how the teams would work together because neither of us really had done it before, had done this specific thing before in this specific way. But being peers and both reporting to Trip made it just, we just, we were in a really nice position to have to figure it out and to be able to figure it out as peers. Um, without any of the, the power BS of like not sitting at the same level. So to that point, what were some of the processes and actual like tangible practices that you guys put into place uh, for your teams to be able to collaborate well and, and specifically make decisions? It sounds like at the end of the day it worked, but what were some of those processes that that you felt led to that success? I would highlight a few things. If you just think of a normal product process, we embedded clinical into each stage there, but that was the kind of gist of it. But so we had dedicated CPD folks on every single team that had anything clinical, obviously for backend and for teams, we didn't have a, a dedicated clinical person, but for anything that was building a new clinical product, they were in the team, they were in all of the rituals. So they were in our standups, planning, retros, et cetera. So they're kind of in it, one. Two, uh, if you think about our stage gates of products, so hey, we have a roadmap or we signed off on a roadmap. Okay, we have a one pager that we're going to turn into a PRD or we signed off. Okay, we have a PRD. Are we ready to go build? Okay, we built it. Are we ready to ship? Okay, let's measure what happened. Clinical was in each of those stage gates. And it was really clear by the time we got there that they were actually part of that whole collaboration where we weren't running up as we did originally to a stage gate and having you know engineering saying, hey, we built this thing and clinical say, wait, 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 we got to undo something. It was like, no, they were a collaborator actively in the PRD. They were a collaborator actively in discovery. They were there as we came through. And some of it's just like little people stuff that we sometimes forget about. You know, if a new concept is being presented to say the senior leadership team, like make sure it's being jointly presented, right? Like at old era, Pete, there were probably times when, you know, product took the lead on presenting something to a larger group. And 
Yeah, I got some phone calls behind the scenes of like, how come I didn't know about this, or why am I not presenting to you, right? And so, oh crap, yeah, right, good point, right? Like, you know, if you want people to feel equal partners at every little piece of of the process, you know, you got to make sure they feel equal partners. And so, we tried. We probably didn't get it right all the time, but we tried, you know, to make sure that the the clinical program development. Person and the product person, the design person, were sort of jointly presenting things to larger audiences and things of that nature. Sometimes it's the little things that you overlook that can have the most dramatic impact on how people feel, and then how they, you know, present together as a as a team. I mean, in an area that it's just so you know, all we hear is is, is sort of negative, challenging, disparaging sometimes stories about how this relationship worked. It's really, really inspiring and refreshing to hear how well you guys did it and how you you figured out how to get it right. So thank you on behalf of all the digital health founders out there who are struggling with this for <laughs> being willing to uh, join us here today and share your perspective. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. I think Pete and I are um, are really quite proud of, of what we were able to to build together at Able to. So Yeah, personally, really, really appreciate you having us to be able to share the story. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com slash disclosures.